Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Uh, yes, I am back. For those who didn't even notice, I've gone, I've been, I've gone, I've come back again. And uh, let me just share a few thoughts, just saves me having to share with everyone over coffee one at a time, uh, about the ex- incredible trip uh, we've just been on. I just spent five days in Guinea. Um, I didn't even realize there are three countries in Africa that have the word Guinea in them. And uh, who knew? Who knew? I was like a probably out of my comfort zone European, uh, trying to work out Africa. Um, but went on this uh, boat, Mercy Ships. It's called the African Mercy. We've got pictures, I think, coming up on the screen. And um, African Mercy is a floating hospital. For about 40 years, this organization, Mercy Ships, has uh, developed boats and taken them to some of the hardest-to-reach areas around the coast of Africa and uh, performed and offered operations for the 17 million people that die every year without having access to a safe, affordable, or um, you know, within reach, an operation. And minor operations actually cause incredible challenges. I know Andy Cowan, who's part of the church, who's been a couple of times to the, to the Mercy Ships. So I was invited to go and to have a look around the place and to visit Mercy Ships and talk about and learn about uh, what they're doing. It is an incredible uh, facility. They have 400 volunteers on board from 40 different nations that change every two or three weeks as p- new people fly in. They have dentists, they have doctors, anaesthetists, nurses, engineers, uh, people, mechanics to repair the Land Rovers, uh, all kinds of people that come on board. And um, 6,000 people queued up, traveling for days for a place on the boat. And most of them get turned away because it's just not, they haven't got enough time, enough capacity, enough drugs, enough resources. Um, but they have 6,000 people queued up and to get them. This is the team I went with. There's me looking good. Do you like that in my little ER outfit? Uh, that's on the top deck with um, a couple from Mercy Ships UK. Uh, Lee in the middle there with the glasses. Um, he is, uh, and then there's also Pastor Yemi from Jesus House in, um, in London. And Martha Shrimpton, who is a creative director, works with Spring Harvest. And so we went along to do some filming, to do some in- interviews and to meet people, which I'm going to talk about as I go through my talk this morning. What's the next screen? I can't remember what else I put up there. This is us getting a shown round. I mean, the operating theatres are like that you would see in a hospital. You wouldn't even believe you're on a boat. The standard is incredible. The quality is phenomenal. And, and the, the, the people who are partners and work and offer their time, um, in fact, they don't even go for free. They pay to go. They actually contribute financially to board and lodging on the boat. And so we were shown around by this lovely lady, Merrill, who regularly volunteers her time and heads up the whole of the operating rooms uh, that they have on the boat. Um, next slide. I've got what else we've got here. This is me and Yemi, all scrubbed up, ready to go. If you need an operation... Don't speak to myself or Yemi, but we quite enjoyed the dressing up opportunity. But there we go. Um, this is when we went out off the boat and we went to a, a place called Hope Centre where they are supporting uh, children particularly who have uh, club feet and their feet have been turned inside on birth. Many of the things you come across are things that in our nation would be resolved within weeks, if not months, of being born. Small things that get out of control very quickly when they're not operated on. And you see children with feet that are turned inside out, and they just do actually very simple operations, and they then plaster cast them up, and they change the plaster cast every single week for about three or four months so they can then walk properly and walk on their feet as you would do normally. And I saw some incredible things. I never heard of something called the windswept legs. Children have legs that are sort of bowed, like they've just been blown by the wind, and they walk around with their legs twisted, and again, a simple operation straightens their legs. And it's amazing 
what they can do. Uh, they speak French in Guinea, um, so I use my best Del Boy French to communicate. You'd have all been proud of me. Um, but mainly it's lots of thumbs up, thumbs down, and smiling faces. Gets you most places, doesn't it? Um, so this lovely little girl who ended up sort of taking a liking to my sunglasses. Um, what else have we got here? I can't remember what else we got there. This is the plaque they have in the reception on the middle of Mercy Ships. As you enter the, um, as you enter the main reception, uh, once you get past the Gurkhas, because I discovered that pirates are a real issue. I was like, what? Oh, yeah, we, we employ the Gurkhas to protect us from pirates. And all around the boat, there's barbed wire. And I'm like, oh, what have I come to? That's <laughs> like crazy. So it says here, Mercy Ships follows a 2,000-year-old model of Jesus, bringing hope and healing to the world's forgotten poor. Faith is right at the center of all they do. Most of the people on board the ship are Christians and want to give back, as Sarah was talking about earlier, about how they can, as people who often train medics, can give up some time to serve this incredible organization. It was a great treat to go off. I felt very privileged, very honored to be able to explore, to see around the boat. I think it was on Thursday, I, I gave my family a FaceTime tour around the whole boat. It was like, I felt like sort of exhausting running around with the camera and sort of saying, Here's, look at this, it is an amazing facility. And it's taken them 40 years. And they're just developing a new boat they've built for 140 million pounds, uh, which they've had donated by 30 very, very wealthy and generous people. And now they need to kit out that new boat. They want to run two boats at the same time so they can do twice the amount of work. It's incredible. I was meeting with one of the guys who's been there for many, many years. He said our first boat in 1986 cost us a million pounds. It took us 20 years to pay it off. We thought a million pounds was too much and we'd never be able to pay for that. And here we are with a boat for 140 million pounds that's going to be put out to service next year in 2020, uh, which I'm sure will be very exciting. So if you're interested in African, um, African mercy and mercy ships, do come and speak to me. Um, if you want to volunteer or participate or give or just pray for them, let me know and I'll point you in the right direction. It's just great to be part of it. Thank you very much for releasing me and my time to go. Thank you for all the uh, kind uh, words I've received and prayers and encouragement. It is a real honor to be able to do that and to be able to see what God is doing all around the world. People are amazing, aren't they? What people do and how they offer their time. So I've got a couple more stories I'll share as we go through this week's talk, because I think it's really going to tie in really well. Um, when we talk about uh, the challenges of community, if you have 400 voluntary crew members on a boat speaking 40 different languages, there is potential for some challenging conversations, you can imagine. Last week, we talked about this idea of we do real. And we said, if you want to um, be something like the original, to go back and copy, what is the original, the original church? How can we find out what the early church looked like? And we used the book of Acts. We go back to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, we talked about the 10 hallmarks of a healthy, Christ-centered church community. And we looked at different things that the church had in the early um, church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And we said, you know, what is the part that you play? What part do you play in the church? And how do you help others find their part to play in a growing church community? And this week, we're going to move on to Acts chapter 3 onwards. And I want to talk about real disagreement. Real disagreement. Because whether you know it or not, when you have any kind of growth, you have challenges, growth pains. You know, maybe you've had children that have had growth pains. A growing church will have growing pains. Growing businesses have growth pains. Growing families have growth pains. A growing relationship will have growth pains. When you go to the next level, there's always challenges that come your way. Charles Spurgeon, who's often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, 
What a great title. A well-known Baptist minister said this, growth is painful, change is painful, but nothing is as painful as staying stuck where you don't belong. How many of us ask, have got regrets of things they wish they had done, but they looked like they were too challenging, so I think I'll just ignore that or leave that. And then we think, oh, if only I'd have just persevered, if I'd only pushed through. Growth hurts, but maturity is reached by change, never by standing still. If you want to reach the top of a mountain, you have to climb up the side of it, and that's where the growth occurs. We all want to be in the top, but we have to work our way up there. As a dad, I, I want to give my children advice that will stop them going through pain. I want them not to go through all the things that I did, all the dumb mistakes that I made. But I also realize as a parent that I can't stop them and I shouldn't stop them from learning through those experiences. They're an important part of growth. Growth, change requires pain. And so I want to just to talk through from Acts chapter 3, looking at the early church, because believe it or not, this perfect church we read about last week, with only in a couple of chapters, has a little bit of discontent. A little bit of rumbling is what the Bible refers to as a rumbling of discontent. They have some disagreements. There is a bit of falling out that takes place, believe it or not, even in the Bible. And uh, this last few days, I've actually I downloaded when I went off on the boat, and I, I watched some of this TV series on Netflix called A.D. If you get a chance to watch it, it's pretty fascinating. It's a, it's a retelling of the book of Acts. And a, a couple there, Mark Burnett and uh, Roma Downey, who are a Christian couple. He's a, a producer of some really well-known TV shows, and she's a famous actress. And they've, they've created this Bible story called A.D. It's pretty graphic in places, um, but it's brought up some great conversations because my daughter Flo has been watching it and asked me loads of questions. Uh, but do encourage you, if you want to, watch it and learn about the book of Acts and the early church. So we've come off the back of that moment in Acts chapter 2, and we have Acts where the people are growing, and there is enthusiasm, and everything's taken place, and the church has grown thousands in a matter of hours. And Peter, it's this great story, Peter is walking along the road one day, and a crippled man shouts to him, have you got any money? And Peter and his friend John stop, they go, no, I haven't got any money, but what I do have, in the name of Jesus Nazareth, get up. And walk. And this man who'd been sitting by the seat at the gate beautiful for many, many years gets up, walks, and then he says, praises God, and goes into the temple, a place that disabled people would not allow to be go, where to go, because it was a segregated system. He went in there celebrating God. What an amazing, incredible moment. And the, the, the people gathered around Peter, and Peter's learned the lesson now. If you get a crowd, preach. And so the crowd gathered around him, and he started preaching. He started telling the good news of Jesus, what Jesus had done, and that Jesus was the Messiah. And, you know, you've been believing this as Jews, and I've got the answer for you. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He died, and he came back to life again. And he invites you to join him and give you eternal life. He's telling this story, and thousands of people are gathering once again. But that puts the nose out of joint for some of the temple leaders. They're like, you know what, who's this guy? We can't have him preaching about this false Messiah and they're thinking. And they, they bring them in front of the court of the temple and they, they warn them. I love this. They warn them, don't do that again. Because that always works to your kids, doesn't it? And they sort of tell them off and they wag their finger and they say, that's really naughty. Don't do that again. And it goes from there. The, the apostles, the early believers are like, wow, we've been told off. And there was like the courage grew, the prayer life grew. They're like going, we've got a mission that's affecting people. And it's starting to create niggles. And they were enthusiastic. And the crowd grew and the, the community grew. And it says in the Bible in um, Acts chapter 4, 
where people started bringing all of their gifts and their offerings. They shared everything. We talked about this last week. And there's this lovely verse in verse 34 in Acts chapter 4. It says, There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or house would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. People gave everything they had, and they would bring it and they would give it generously. Amazing moment. But then there come, along comes a very unfortunate couple, which no one ever preaches about, called an Ananias and Sapphira. It's one of those deep, dark secrets of the church. We're not quite sure how to handle it. But it's in the Bible, so I feel I'm at liberty to explain to you. Ananias and Sapphira were part of this early church community. They were enthusiastic and keen to celebrate all that God was doing. But they made a plan. They would sell their house, and rather than giving all the money to the church, they would just give some of the money. But they would tell everybody, this is the little sort of sneaky extra bit, they tell everyone, we've given all of our money to the church. We've sold our property and it's all going and we've given it all away. Aren't we good? And so they did this plan. They agreed. It said they conspired, the two of them, they were going to do this. And they came and they brought their money to the apostles and to Peter and they gave the money. And Peter, who was full of the Holy Spirit, said to them, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? I'll read you. His words, he says this. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And then in a moment, like a scene from some kind of mafia or godfather movie, Ananias just drops dead in front of him. And the young men roll him up in a bit of carpet and carry him out the door. I mean, that's a moment we, you wouldn't forget if that happened in a church meeting on an offering Sunday. That would be an awkward moment when they're going. If I sort of said to you, I don't think you've given all your money. And you're, oh, and it, whoa. And then it gets worse because a few hours later it says that his wife Sapphira turns up. And Peter gives her an opportunity. He says, was this really all the money that you got from the sale of your property? And imagine that she had a moment there. She could have come clean. She could have been truthful. But instead she goes, yeah, that was everything we got from the sale of the property. At that moment, Peter says this amazing words. It's like something out of a film. He says, at the door are the feet of the people who just buried your husband. And now they're going to bury you as well. She falls down. She dies. And I feel a bit sorry for these guys who just buried one body. They walk back in the room and there's another body lying there. And they go, yeah, next one, roll that one up on a bit of plastic, and off you go again. I mean, that was a crazy moment. It says, that the, in the Bible, it says that they were full of fear, that the community were like, what is going on here? There was incredible confidence in Peter at that time. People were, um, were being attracted to him and joining them, but there's also these powerful moments where God, in all his awesome and fearful power, was at work. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Don't worry, we'll come back to that. But the apostles met all kinds of um, opposition, well, disagreements and challenges. And then we get to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, it says this. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. It's a great phrase. And there were rumblings. There wasn't actual discontent. There were just like little noises, little kind of annoyances happening, things going wrong. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. Two different languages going, oh, it's not fair. Saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. 
So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose following men. These seven were presented to the apostles, who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. Their number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Even the perfect original early church had disagreements. They had moments of discontent. They had some rumblings. I came across this story of a church leader who was walking across a bridge one day and spied a man who looked like he was about to jump. So he thought, I would try and stall him until the authorities showed up. Don't jump, he said. Why not, said the man. No one loves me. The church leader said, oh, he said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? The man said, yeah, I do believe in God. The church leader said, are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. He said, that's good, said the church leader, so am I. He said, what kind of Christian are you? He said, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? The man said, I'm a Protestant. The church says, that's good news, so am I. The leader said, have you been baptized? And the man said, yes, I have. He said, have you been full immersion, adult baptism, or infant baptism? He said, full immersion, adult baptism. Oh, great news, said the church leader. So have I. He said, are you a Calvinist or an Armenian? He said, oh, he said, I'm an Armenian. Oh, me too, said the church leader. Great news. He said, are you, are you a dispensational premillennialist conservative Armenian or a progressive dispensationalist conservative Armenian? Which one are you? He said, I am, wait for it, the dispensational premillennial dispensational Armenian person that I mentioned. Me too, said the leader. That's amazing. One last question he said for you. He said, do you prefer the King James Version or the New International Version? He said, well, actually, I quite like the message version. Heretic, said the man, and pushed him off the bridge. It's not a true story in case you were worried. We do this crazy thing. We try and segregate the church into different sides and different groups. Who are you with? How do you do things? We get sidetracked by side issues. I remember as a child, I've been in church all my life. I remember getting picked up by someone and saying to me, you shouldn't chew gum in church. I didn't know, but I, I guess as an older person, that's a bit disrespectful. But I was just chewing gum, minding my own business. And someone thought it was their place to tell me what I should or shouldn't do. I even remember the time I was about 10 years old and I was wearing a baseball cap to church. And someone said, you mustn't wear a hat to church. But I looked around and all the ladies were wearing hats. Some of you remember those days where ladies wore hats. And I'm thinking, hold on, the ladies are wearing hats. But I was told it was rude for a man to wear a hat in church. And I remember thinking, I don't understand what I've done wrong. I just turned up and wearing a hat. And we can get sidetracked by side issues. It amazes me how often we get into kind of disagreement over some very small minor things. The volume of the music, the worship style, which I thought the worship band was great today, doing it slightly differently. You may not. We can have a disagreement later on. Uh, we can talk about all sorts of things. We can talk about how did the world begin? How was the world created? That's always a good one to get conversations going. Which version of the Bible you prefer? Which one's even accurate? Uh, how's the world going? to end? What's the role of Israel? Um, what about the things you should wear? I like to model myself on worship leaders, and I think I've, uh, I've matched myself to Jim today quite nicely. Um, next time, Jim, text me, and we'll make sure we coordinate uh, following week. We can get sidetracked by things that we eat, so we can sidetrack by what we should or should not drink, how much is an appropriate amount to drink, should we teetotal, or should we be allowed to have something we can talk about these things, disagree about those things, but none of those things are anything to do with the good news of Jesus Christ. They are side issues. 
They're not wrong or bad or things we should talk about, but it's not the main thing. And it takes us off the track of what we're called to do. And the church wastes a lot of energy having conversations that no one's really bothered about. The world does not care. Some of your conversations about what is right or what is wrong, what song is the best song or the worst song, the churches don't know that there's a God out there that loves them and wants to be reconnected to them. They don't know they've got a part to play in God's great story. And our job is to tell them not to get so busy getting hooked up into things that are actually irrelevant for many people. Our growth planes, our disagreements can create the foundations for a healthy future. We can choose whether we get annoyed and frustrated and we can walk away or we choose to build and to overcome some of those challenging growth pains. I want to give you three thoughts from the early church in the book of Acts. We're just over, giving a quick overview to um, just this morning to think about how we handle disagreement. Disagreement happens everywhere. Do not be surprised if you think everyone else has got it right and you're the only family that disagrees at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. Isn't it the most stressful time if you've got small children trying to get to church anywhere near on time? We can get our kids to school for 9 o'clock, but we can't get them to church for 10.30. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like, ah! It's like the devil knows the worst part of our day is trying to get them in the car on a Sunday morning. But I have to say, I'm very impressed with those who brought their new babies to church. I mean, within days of giving birth, it's like, wow, respect to you all. Number one, here we go. First thing I want to say to us today, we need to be people that watch our hearts. Watch your heart. God is more interested in your attitude than your action. Always. He is always more impressed by your attitude than your action. In the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they could have come and they could have given whatever amount they wanted to. The amount was not the issue. Their attitude was what God was concerned about. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the people around them. They could have easily said, you know what? We've sold our house. We'd like to bring half the money and give it. That would be been amazing. Wow. But instead, they tried to pretend that they did something that they hadn't actually done. The issue was not the action. The issue was the attitude. And the attitude is so important. Our attitude is what lives within each one of us. Matthew 12 tells from the overflow of our heart... The mouth speaks. The things we say, the things we do, they start from within us. We need to make sure we keep our hearts clean. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to do something that was wrong. Because there's somewhere within them. They were either trying to compete with other people. They were trying to impress other people. But whatever they were doing, it was not honoring to God. They were actually, their heart had become unclean. And we can all be guilty of that. The challenge always starts from within. Somebody else might frustrate you. They might annoy you. But you choose how you respond. You choose what you say. You may have an opinion. It doesn't mean you have to share it or tweet about it. You can listen to someone and you can disagree with them and you can say, you know what, that's not the fight I want to take right now. We all have a choice of how we behave. We must check our heart and check our attitude. There is a difference between critical thinking and being critical. Some people love just being critical. You know, you can show them your pride and joy, your new car or your house or your, you know, you've done some decorating or whatever. People come, there's always someone who will pick a hole in something somewhere. 
They always point out the fact that it's not the latest model or something. You go, really? Thank you. Um, but we can choose how we, how we respond. When we see something, do, do we actually say something or can we actually keep that quiet? Check your heart. If you have a problem with somebody, please go and speak to them. If someone frustrates you or annoys you or has done something to you, speak to them. You choose how you respond. You get to the option of how you behave. Your behavior is your responsibility. My behavior is my responsibility. And think, please, can I say, church, before we've talked this before, before we use our social media, it's a powerful tool. If you have no filters, it's a really dangerous tool. When you tweet or use Instagram or use Facebook, whatever it is you use, think before you say stuff. It will be there forever, and future employers may look that up. But also, do you really mean what you're about to say? Are you just ranting? Is that helpful? We often talk about Philippians 4. Is it kind? Is it thoughtful? What kind of things are you writing and talking about? Make sure you watch your heart. It always starts from within. One of the heroes of um, Mercy Ships is this guy here on the next screen, um, Dr. Gary Parker. Dr. Gary Parker showed us on, on, took us on hospital rounds one morning on the ship. And Dr. Gary Parker is quite a fascinating person because he's been on the Mercy Ships since 1986, permanently. He lives and has lived on the boat. He made the choice in 1986 to join them. He was actually, he's American. He was living in, um, he was living in Wales doing his uh, final uh, medical degree. And he heard about this boat. He thought, that's what I want to do. And he made a choice to give up a potentially lucrative career as a maxofacial surgeon, basically sorting out things around the face areas. And he, and he decided, no, he wanted to give himself to this ministry. In 1986, he got onto the boat, and he's never got off it since, apart from the old trip back home and that sort of thing. He met his wife on the boat. They had children. I don't want to know too much of the details on the boat, but they brought the children. There's even a school on the boat, and they, the children are now left because they're adults. They've gone off to university, and some of his kids, one of his kids, has come back to work on the boat as well. And he's done all of that voluntarily. For 33 years, he's not taken a salary. He's just chosen to serve some of the most unlikely people, a, a, a potential American surgeon who could earn millions of dollars. He's chosen to give. And he's a gentle, lovely, humble, godly man, beautiful man. Everyone talks about him. We, we were three days before we met him, and I managed to have a meal with him. And he was a fascinating character. And he said this to me. He said that the challenge on this boat, he says that we have so many different nationalities who have different cultures and ways of working. And you have to make a decision very quickly, do I get offended or do I try and find out more about the way they do their culture? And he gave me the example. As an American, he could say this. He said, here's the situation. A new recruit comes on board, a crew member, and he's German. And he's walking down the corridor to go to his new room, his bunk bed, to share with nine other people. And he's walking down the corridor, and an American crew member comes in the opposite direction. And he says to this new guy, goes, hey, how are you doing? And then carries on walking. The German stopped to tell him how he was doing. And then looks and goes, oh, he's not really interested in how I'm doing. At that point, he said, this happens all the time. At that point, he has a choice to make. Do I go to my room and get really annoyed by the whole American nation and this representation of that? Or do I say to him, excuse me, when you said this, I, I misunderstand you. I think you mean 
you want to hear from me? And how am I doing? And maybe then at that point, the American would say, oh, I'm sorry, that was just an expression we used. I didn't really mean how are you doing. I just was saying good morning to you. And he said, that happens all the time with all these different nations. Imagine you're in a surgery together and you're trying to use the same language, but you've got different languages and different medical um, concepts. And, and he said, that happens all the time. We have to make choices to watch our hearts and watch our attitudes and to hold short accounts of people we're trying to work with. Amazing guy. And it's worth looking. I mean, they've, they've done documentaries on Gary Parker. Um, National Geographic did an eight-part series on his work. It's phenomenal what he is doing on board that boat. And he makes it sound like it's just a normal thing. He told me how to replace a, a jaw with a titanium jaw. And it made it sound like he was potting around his garden, just doing a little bit of weeding. And I said, seriously, you make it sound so easy. He said, well, it's like a jigsaw. You just put different bits back together again. Oh, my God, I don't think I want to try uh, for the sake of the patients or for anyone else. So number one, watch your heart. Number two, clarity of purpose. In Acts chapter 6, there is this moment where the, the apostles are challenged. They're saying, look, what's going on? Who's going to feed the widows and the orphans? Who's going to look after all the people in need? And the apostles are very clear. That's not for us to do. We've been called to preach the gospel and to teach people and to pray. That's what we're called to do. Because they were confident in the purpose that God had asked them to do. Many times, and I would know this, church leaders are often told what they should or shouldn't do. And you think, you know what? People think I should, so maybe I'll just go along with it. Yeah, I'll help you. I'll do that. I'll participate. No, there's nothing wrong with helping or serving. I'm more than happy to help and do my part. But what is the bit that I'm called to? What's the bit that you're called to do? What's the part that you play? What's your contribution? Have you got clarity of your identity, of confidence in who you are, what you're meant to be doing, and also what you're not meant to be doing? We're not all meant to call to do everything. It's great to have heard from the big team leaders this morning. And thank you very much, uh, um, Alex and Sarah, for sharing that. I'm on big team three with Amanda, which I think is probably the best big team, by the way. Um, that's just personal choice <laughs> with our family. But, you know, the whole thing about serving is important. We, we are, it's in our DNA. I thought it was a lovely phrase. We should be serving one another. But what is the bit you're called to do? What's the part you play? And maybe big team is not your thing, but maybe you can serve the coffees, or maybe you can do the kids' program, or maybe you can help in the worship band or the technical team. There's loads of different ways of contributing on the ministry team and prayer. What are the part you get to play? But we need to be confident, this is what God's called me to do. And I think some of the challenges I find with Christians today is they're never really sure what they're meant to be doing. And they get pulled around by the latest fad idea, the whisper in someone's ear, and they go, oh, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. And you're moving around. What is it that God has given you? What is the tools and the equipment and the, and the, and the talent and the skills that God has given to you? What are you going to do with what God has put in your hands? We need to be confident in who God made each one of us to be. Romans 12 says this. Um, this is the writer Paul saying these words. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Church only works when we each play our part. Don't play someone else's part. Play your part. Be confident in the part that God has given you to do. Be confident in your purpose. Patrilentione says these words. A, a lack of confidence in who you are is a violation of humility. 
a violation of humility. Humility is agreeing with who God said you're meant to be. This uh, next picture here is um, another surgeon called Dr. David Chong. Uh, David Chong is a, a plastic surgeon. And he was on the boat in 1997 as a junior doctor, just helping out. And Gary Parker, the guy I just told you about, said to him, you should go and get trained as a plastic surgeon. Then you can come back and participate in the work on the ship. And so this guy went back to Australia, where's his home um, in Australia, in Brisbane, and he went back and he, and he became a plastic surgeon. He's now one of the best-known plastic surgeons in Australia, working particularly in a children's hospital, and specializing in cleft lips and palates and repairing the cleft lips that many children have in, um, in Africa, because often they're not dealt with. And he comes back to the boat every year for six weeks, and he works with Gary, and for six weeks a year, he helps provide um, surgery for children who could not possibly... Um, afford or find safe uh, operations where they might live, but only on the boat. And he said this amazing comment, which I really kind of resonated with me. He said, as a surgeon, you have to have confidence that you are the best person in the room to hold that knife. Think about that. He said, someone says, surgeons are seen as arrogant. He said, but you need to have a confidence that I'm the best person to hold that knife. He said, you don't want a surgeon in the room who's going to all of the team around the table, shall I cut here? Is this the right place? You don't want an uncertain surgeon. You want someone who's confident in what they're doing. He said, but the challenge is also, I need to be, I need to be humble enough that if someone else in the room says, are you sure that's the right decision? I think twice before I just arrogantly push on. And they, they make it a principle. They pray before they operate. It's part of what they do. And, and Gary Parker, the doctor who's been on board for 33 years, said to me, there have been some times we've had to stop the operation, pause, and so we have to pray. Because if God doesn't intervene, this is not going to work and this patient will go. And so they've had times of prayed. He's, he's kept a track of all the miracles that have taken place. But I love the idea that if you're going to be in the job that God's called you to be, to be confident that you're the right person to do what you're, you're doing. To have that confidence of God has given this for me to do. The Bible encourages us to be humble. To humble ourselves. But that must make sure we get a God perspective on who we're meant to be. And to understand humility. As C.S. Lewis has said, it's not, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. It's great, isn't it? So number two is to make sure that we have clarity of purpose. The last one, number three, is this fight for unity. Unity is so important. Unity tells an incredible story. When we are together as God's church, the world is inspired. Jesus himself, in John chapter 17, spent hours praying for his disciples that they would be one like you, Father, and I are one. May they be united. Why, he says this? So the world may know. If they see us together and united, even though we might disagree on some aspects of our, our faith and how we express it, they see our united front and united in our belief and our united in our, our language and our storytelling, the world will know that God is real and he cares. He's interested in them. In Acts chapter 6, it says there, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. And the, the disciples said, you know what? Let's get together and talk. Let's sort this out. Let's approach this. It's so important when there is a lack of unity that we fight for unity. We go, you know what? I've got a disagreement with somebody. 
I'm going to find out what I can do. Abraham Lincoln said, I don't like that man. I must find out more about him. I don't like that person. I must find out more about them. And often our conceptions about somebody are misunderstandings until we get to know them and talk to them. Unity starts with you. See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's clever, isn't it? But it's also true. Unity starts with you. Unity starts with you making the choice to have the conversation with somebody that's actually annoyed you and probably doesn't even know they're annoying you. I find it fascinating when I can be irritated by someone's actions or words, sometimes on a social media thread or, or a video feed, and I'm like going, why does that person frustrate me so much? What is that about? Unity starts with you. We are not meant to be uniformity, but unity. We're not meant to be alike. God made you to be unique, and one of you is plenty. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.